Thank you, John and Julia, for sharing. We're so thankful for the Finney family and the gifts uh, that they share every week with us. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you pass those to the center aisle, we'd like to collect them. We'll be praying for you this week. And I want to take a moment as we uh, get ready for uh, the, the message from God's Word, just to uh, take some time to encourage and um, to exhort the men and the fathers of our church. If you're, if you're a father and a man of God in this body, would you stand? We would like uh, to give a charge to you. We don't have a, a coffee mug for you this year, or a t-shirt or a tie clip or something else. Uh, it was so well received uh, on Mother's Day that we sent a gift to the children's home that we're going to keep doing stuff like that and investing it um, uh, in, in others. And so this, uh, this year we're going to uh, send um, a gift to Emmanuel New Orleans, Matthew DeLauder and their building fund. And we have a letter prepared, dear Matthew, from the days we learned of your coming to the New Orleans area, which is about eight years now. We've prayed for you, your family, and the work of planting Emmanuel Community Church. We're very grateful for your faithful work in the unique setting that is New Orleans. You have proven to be a godly, faithful, persevering pastor to Emmanuel. It is our joy to call you a friend and, uh, and offer our continued prayer and support to you and our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel. On this Father's Day, please accept this gift to Emmanuel Church's Building Fund on behalf of the men and fathers of FBC Gonzalez. And I just want to charge you men, we live um, in a day where the headwinds are strong with regard to godly uh, men who serve their families, who serve the Lord with gladness. And I just want to exhort you that you would be strong in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. At the foot of the cross, we found meaning for our life where God sent his only son to die for our sins and that by placing our faith in him, we are forgiven of our past, our present is secure and our future is hopeful. And so I just am acquainted with fatherhood now. I've been a father for 30 years. The good, the bad, the ugly. <laughs> the many times where you just feel like, uh, wow, how can I overcome my mistakes? And the answer is the gospel. That God has called us to himself through Jesus Christ and he is our father and he's the one we look to. And I, I'm reminded of the statement of the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind. Paul had baggage in his BC days, failures in his life. Forgetting what is behind, I press on to the high calling of God and Christ Jesus, my Lord. So men, may you be encouraged this morning. And I wanna pray for you as we prepare to go into God's word. Would you bow with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, your word declares to us how blessed is the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments. We pray on this Father's Day that you would raise up men of God whose hearts are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, men who pursue you, who pursue what you love and flee from what you hate, men of God who know and love the Lord with all their heart, who treasure your word and apply it to their lives, who love their wives and their children, who nurture and sacrifice for the little ones that you've put in their care through a godly example and biblical teaching and love that comes from you, who glory in the cross and your matchless grace and who when they fail, they would not run from you but to you. 
who are patient and kind and generous and good, just like you, who model servant leadership in their homes as well as in your church, who are men of integrity and live with no secrets, who are men of faith and courage and self-denial, who mentor their children and grandchildren and younger generations to live for Christ in this world, who fight the good fight of faith and who finish the course And on that day when they stand before you, they would hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so today, O Lord, we ask that you would do such a work in us. And we pray these things in the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Job chapter 1. Some years ago, when I was um, attending the Southern Baptist Convention, I spoke with a seasoned pastor who had grown children, and with joy and humility, he shared how his children were walking with the Lord and how he could relate with the Apostle John, who said, there's no greater joy than when I hear that my children are walking in the truth. He was scheduled to preach in his son's pulpit on that Father's Day. And he told me a little bit about his message. Preachers do that with one another. What are you preaching Sunday? And then sometimes you get more than you want. (laughs) Uh, But on this occasion, he highlighted his uh, message. And he said, um, you know, he was thinking about Jesus' prayer on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he said that as a father, he has often felt the opposite of that prayer. Children, forgive me for I do not know what I'm doing. And being a father is certainly a humbling experience, for sure. But the Lord has given fathers an incredible platform to make a powerful impact in the lives of their children and beyond to future generations. Not only is fatherhood a humbling assignment, but it's also under attack today. Some years ago, Vody Bauckham wrote an article entitled, Dads, Your Children Need You. And the article began with a story told in prison ministry circles that speaks to the state of fatherhood today. One year, a group decided to provide cards to inmates to write to their mothers on Mother's Day. The response was overwhelming, as nearly all the inmates showed up to sign and send cards to their mothers. The event was so successful, someone had the idea, why don't we do this on Father's Day as well? Almost no one participated. The point, well, it depends on who you ask. However, at the heart of the discrepancy is fatherlessness, both in terms of the men who are absent from their children's lives. A major indicator of future incarceration is fatherlessness. Read any study and you'll see that is one of the primary causes. And a whole host of other maladies. In terms of the culture's slow, steady slide into the abyss of radical feminism and anti-masculinity, that is the air we breathe today. It's a two-edged sword. Fathers are not there, and the culture argues increasingly that they're not necessary. In the midst of it all are men, both young and old, who are walking into fatherhood amid the confusion and the degradation, trying to figure out just what it means. This church exists to proclaim the glory of the gospel through Jesus Christ and to make disciples of all people, men. 
Regardless of what your family situation is, the gospel and the light of God's word shines on the path of your life and mine to flip the script of whatever your family tree may look like. And for every young man hearing this message this morning, let's speak in clear terms. This is God's will for you, that if it is his will for you to marry, that you would honor marriage, that you would love your wife, that you would pursue purity of heart and body. No, you're not living with your girlfriend before you get married. That's called fornication. No, you're not going outside the bounds of marriage. That's called adultery. But you would love the wife of your youth all the days of your life. That you would not find your exhilaration from pornography, but you would find it in the wife of your youth in the purity of marital love. That you would honor the commitments of your life as a husband. And if God would bless you with children, that you would love them and nurture them and care for them and disciple them and show them the way. When you make mistakes, you would confess your sins to them, always reminding them, dad needs a savior too, son. Little girl, your dad needs a redeemer, and I'm pointing you to him. Jesus is that redeemer. To work hard to provide and to protect and to shepherd and to lead. Again, the headwinds are strong. You won't find encouragement in many places, but I want you to find it here. This is God's will for you. Not allowing past failures or mistakes to cripple you or hamstring you, but moving on this day to say, God's got a call on my life and I want to honor him in it. This is proving what is excellent under the Lord. I think it's about 40, the age of 40. Many fathers realize they're not going to be famous. And that's okay. God hasn't called us to be famous. But I pray you would be famous in your family for your faithfulness to Christ. God hasn't called us to be noticed by the world. We need to be faithful to the task of investing ourselves into the lives of those God has given to us to love and to nurture and to lead. So this morning, I want to turn your attention to the book of Job. And often we think of the sufferings of Job and the trials of Job, and they are immense and heavy. But this morning, I want you to look at his resume in verses one through five with me. And just to get a little backdrop um, and an example and a charge for us on this Father's Day. This book is about a man, a man who is introduced as having his priorities in line. You would think, oh, he's gonna sail through this life with no problems at all, only to read in the span of a few verses, his world falls apart. These 10 children, these seven sons and three daughters, there would come a time when they would be no more. God would take them through calamity without a word, without an answering of the grievances. You never find in the book of Job, okay, Job, here's why I've done this. You'll never find that in Job. He was a man who had his commitments in place, a man who you would want in your family or as a friend or a neighbor or a partner in business. Job is presented with such a glowing resume that we might conclude that he would be spared from these things, but that was not the case. The book of Job speaks of the problem of suffering, but it focuses more on how we should live before a sovereign and holy God. In fact, at the end of the book of Job, Job deals with so many contrary emotions and 
he begins to, to, to bow up a bit at the Almighty and God takes him to the woodshed in chapter 38. Were you there, Job, when I cast the stars into the sky? Were you there when I created the animal world? What's the answer? No, no, you weren't. And so by implication, you read those chapters in Job and you think, Job, it might be a really good idea for you just to be quiet. And Job came to a place of conviction and he said, oh, he said to the Lord, Lord, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours will be thwarted. I've heard of you with my ear, but now I see you with my eyes and you're a God I can trust and Lord, I repent and I worship you. There's wisdom that can be imparted from Job's experience. We, we want life to be neat and clean and crisp. We like nice, easy, clear answers. And you don't find it in the book of Job or in life. Some things are just messy. So what's our hope? It's the grace of God. So look with me at Job 1, verses 1 through 5. And I've, I've broken it down in your insert. I would want you to notice first that he was a man of integrity, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. I always, you know, think of that. Uh, How would you like to be from the land of Uz? Well, Job was, and he made quite a name for himself, not in a self-promoting way, but he was a godly man. That he he was a man blameless and upright. He was a man of integrity. He feared God and turned away from evil. If suffering is punishment for those who practice evil, evil, Job was not likely to experience it. His walk with God was steadfast. It was regular. He turned away from evil because he feared the Lord. The the words, the terms, blameless and upright, he was a man of integrity. And that is an interesting Hebrew word. Integrity is the Hebrew word tom. It means wholeness. It means wholeness. He did not live a divided life, men. He did not live one way at church and another way at home. One way at home and a different way at work. One way with his friends and another way with his family. His life was marked by integrity, which means wholeness. Sin brings fractures into our life. But he did not live a tormented, his life was not tormented by secret sin. Scripture has much to say about integrity. The word is used over 25 times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word, again, means completeness or wholeness. And we understand the thrust when we think about the field of mathematics. And we see that an integer is a whole number as opposed to a fraction. This idea emerges from the Bible in that God calls us to integrity. He calls us to wholeness. How can I know wholeness when my, when my heart's been fractured and with hurts and disappointments and my own sin. How can I find wholeness? In Psalm 15, the psalm writer said, only those who live in integrity abide in God's presence and with his blessing. How do I know that integrity? And the answer is in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. If my hope of being in God's presence is to be a person of integrity, what, what hope do I have? The prob- I have a problem because I have an integrity crisis. There, there are times, there are days, there are weeks where I wonder, Lord, am I ever going to get this right? We don't keep our own resolutions, let alone God's commands. And honestly, we are shot through with integrity breaches. 
No one will get to, he- to heaven based upon their integrity. There's not one of us who's not broken. That's why we need a savior. We say we believe the Bible, yet dismiss the truth of the word as it comes to bear on our decisions and lifestyles. As believers, we affirm that sin must be punished, but not if those sins are committed by us. We're honest about a little dishonesty until we're honest until a little dishonesty will save us money. We hold a conviction until it becomes hard, and we dismiss it knowing that man, you know, God understands. In the flow of culture, these things don't sound like a big deal. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to remember that he has eyes like flames of fire and can see into our life with this penetrating gaze. King David, whose sins of murder and adultery are showcased on the pages of Scripture for us, was nevertheless a man who pursued integrity. King David, who would have been canceled out of hand, The writer of 72, half the Psalms, the sweet singer of Israel. He was nevertheless a man after God's own heart and pursued integrity even though he had failed miserably at times in his life. Would you listen to David in Psalm 101? David declared, I will walk within my house within the integrity of my heart. That was his resolve. Was he perfect? Obviously not. But that was his resolve. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. He further stated that he would set no worthless thing before his eyes and that he would possess a zero tolerance for perversion and deception within the walls of his own house. How do we find our way back when it seem, we seem to have lost our way? How do we come to terms with our own failures and lack of integrity? Nothing seems to drag more stubbornly, we often say around here, nothing seems to drag more stubbornly than our, our sack of failures. And often I see, with men in particular in our culture, the defeat, the discouragement, and it's like Satan puts his boot on your throat. And you feel trapped. I pray that this morning would be a morning of gospel declaration. That you would see who you are in Jesus Christ. And if you've yet to turn from him, he's the answer that you need. You need a redeemer who lives forever, who will be with you and to help you and to strengthen you. In essence, this is the message extended to every one of us through the gospel. Like Humpty Dumpty, we had a great fall, but the heart of the gospel is that God in his grace takes our fractured lives and through the work of his son begins to rebuild it. Our only response to our lack of integrity is repentance, not excuses, not speeches. Repentance. A heart sorrow and a change of mind that leads to a course direction in your life. It's not, it's not based on self-righteousness. It's not based on self-pity. It's saying, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Warren Wiersbe once quipped, in order to understand integrity, we must first recognize two forces are, are at work in this world. God is putting things together. And secondly, sin is tearing things apart. God wants to make integers. Satan wants to make you a fraction of what God wants you to be.
Proverbs states that the wicked flee when no one's chasing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Are you a man of integrity? How do I do, begin to survey that? Well, you, you begin to ask, do, do I, am I a man who lives with a troubled conscience? Am I always looking over my shoulder, wondering what's going to fall next? Am I a man driven by fears? Am I living in a state of fear of being found out? What do I do? You confess your sins to the Lord, and you begin again with Him, making it right with others. It's amazing what the Lord can do to bring about a heart of conviction and a heart of integrity. I read um, Ray Ortland's book, The Death of Porn, this past spring, and a fantastic book on a number of fronts. But he, he shared about this Anglican bishop and the power of the gospel, this Anglican bishop who was from Uganda. And he preached in England. He had left Uganda, come to England and preached and told this true story about a Ugandan man renewed by the risen Christ. He said, I could tell you a case of a man back home, 45 years old, a pagan, an illiterate man who knew nothing about Christ. Then he was brought by grace through the preaching of, of Christians into the presence of Jesus and him crucified. And the man was so changed that within a month, when impure thoughts came into his heart, he literally went outside from, from a meeting and vomited. What sensitivity. A man steeped in paganism with no Bible training, no background. And now in the light of Calvary, this man is taken, recreated, renewed. His conscience is so clean that when impure thoughts came, he went out and physically vomited. I'm not saying that's the sign of revival. <laughs> but that's a start. The Holy Spirit had renewed the personality of this man. He was new in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things became new. And he began to see his sin the way God saw it. I thought of the Gerizim demoniac. I, I mentioned him at least once a quarter. His story told in Mark 5. This was one frightening man. This was a scary man. He had an unclean spirit, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even the chains. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one wanted to go near him. And besides that, he was walking around naked night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out, that sound. Can you imagine the sound coming forth from him? Always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And he met the living Christ on that day. And Jesus, with a word, sent the unclean spirit into a herd of pigs. Talk about pork therapy. The, the demons said... Are you, don't torment us before our time. In other words, they know their end is sure. And they were saying to the living Christ in his earthly ministry, we know we're doomed for sure, but you're early. And they were cast out. And the scripture says of him, he was clothed and in his right mind. The beginning of integrity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that we might be reconciled to God. Job was a man who was blameless and upright, not perfect. He was a sinner who needed God's forgiveness and atonement and right standing. Notice with me second, the rest of the points aren't as long. He was a man who feared the Lord. It says in the latter part of verse one, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This, there is a fear that is sinful when you're worried about the circumstances of your life, what you shall eat, what you shall wear, where you shall live, the affairs of your life. We're commanded not to be anxious for anything. We're called in the scripture many times over, fear not, fear not, fear not. There's a fear that is sinful but there's a fear that's a virtue that's good and that is the fear of the Lord one who feared God we live in a day of phobias there were people who are afraid of crowds and afraid of heights and afraid of going in elevators and there's homophobia and Christophobia and every kind of phobia under the under the sun the Bible does describe a true phobia Uh, because we are sinners and God is a consuming fire. We have every reason to fear him. And so what brings access to this God who should be feared? And the answer to that is the mercy found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, we are commanded, come to the throne of grace boldly that we might receive mercy through his shed blood. The Bible describes a true phobia because of our state before God, and it's through Christ we can have access to him. John Newton wrote a phrase, we must never forget, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Job feared the Lord that led to a godly obedience, a godly and joyful obedience in everything that he did. Proverbs 14:26 says, "'In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, "'and his children will have refuge.'" And that's what we see in Job chapter 1. So fear God and no one else and hate sin and nothing else. Thirdly, he was a man who turned away from evil, verse 1. He turned away from evil, temptations that come. Let me just hold out several temptations that I think are common among men. One is um, selfishness. No, no, not me. (laughs) Hold on. This is, this is an ongoing battle with every, in every man's heart, just being selfish, self-centered. When we look at the call of the gospel, it is, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And to follow him means that we're constantly putting off self and putting on others, certainly those in our family. Pride. Pride is the is such a stealth sin and it slaughters so many. We don't often recognize it, but we value our opinions. We refuse to be corrected. We refuse to listen. We refuse to show humility that somehow we think that's gonna be breed weakness. Sexual sins, that would be a third temptation. Sexual sins, the, the whole issue of pornography, let's just be honest, it's widespread. It, it, it just is slaughtering men left and right and requires really a radical response to it anger abuse 
widespread in our culture. I always remember that line from a movie back in the 1980s where one high school boy rolled up his arm and showed a, car, a scar on his arm and he said, you see this? This is what happens when you spill paint in the garage in my house. You get one of these. And truth be known, many men could be compared with the Gerizim demoniac we just um, mentioned, and some covered up. And then, and then the whole issue of shame and unforgiveness and bitterness. Lewis Smedes identified three common sources of crippling shame, secular culture, graceless religion, and unaccepting parents. In secular culture, we learn that a person must look good and feel good and make good. It is amazing to watch how secular popular culture devour their own if one steps out of line. You're not going to find your hope in this world, friends. It's shame-filled. Graceless religion tells us we must follow the letter of the rules and failure will bring eternal rejection. So here would be a great clarification for us this morning is we want to be absolutely faithful to call sin what it is as God defines it. But also we want to show the mercy and grace of God for those who are broken by it. Of all the character qualities of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, one that caught my eye recently is a, is a pastor is gentle. A church needs to be firm and gentle, firm on the truth and gentle to receive sinners. Who, who among us has not been affected by the devastation of sin? That is our glory that God has received us because of what he's done through Jesus Christ. Secular culture, graceless religion, unaccepting parents. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Convince us we will never meet their approval. Ernest Hemingway tells of a Spanish father who decided to reconcile with his son who had run away to Madrid. Now remorseful, the father takes out an ad in the El Liberal newspaper that simply read, Paco, Meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. Paco is a common name in Spain, and when the father goes to the square, he finds 800 young men named Paco, all longing to be reconciled with their dad. Time cannot heal all wounds, but Jesus can. Bring him your pain, take to him your sins and failures. He knows what to do with them. Number four, Job was blessed with God's favor. Now this isn't a prosperity gospel point. This is just stating a matter of fact that God, this godly man, God chose to bless just like he did Abraham, just like he did David, just like he did Solomon. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, 10 kids. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of, uh, yoke of oxen, 500 male donkeys, and many, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. That's quite a resume. 
He was wealthy and blessed. The hand of the Lord was with him. And so I think a heart rightly committed to Christ, committed to walk in obedience, comes with God's favor on your life, which is what we should long for. I think one of the the moments of of true spiritual maturity is when we stop leaning on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge him so he can direct our paths by his word. The hand of the Lord was with him. That's true of every follower of Jesus Christ. The last thing Jesus said was, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Surveying this phrase, the hand of the Lord, what a powerful statement. Pharaoh sought to keep the Israelites in bondage, but the hand of the Lord was against him. Guess what happened to Pharaoh? Moses proclaimed to Israel following their deliverance from Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord, the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought us out. When the Philistines were in possession of the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Judges, it says the hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people. It didn't sit well in heaven that the the Philistines had the ark of God and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Joshua called Israel to assemble stones of remembrance to remember what God had done for them in crossing the Jordan, that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The hand of the Lord is not confined in the Old Testament. We read of that in Acts 11 when it speaks of the church at Antioch. Luke records God's blessing upon this great congregation in simple terms. The hand of the Lord was with them. Which is an anthropomorphism. Right? Where scripture gives to God a human characteristic in order for us to understand him better. The hand of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord is promised to every follower of Christ, everyone who's made right with him. Job lived under the mighty hand of God that brought blessing as well as sufferings. That is a hope for us. I often mention Spurgeon's bout with gout, which was debilitating for him pre-medicine and he once said if I didn't believe that this gout was a trial from the hand of the Lord I would go mad the favor of the Lord well I think God's against me the apostle Paul said if God in Christ if God is for us who can who in the world can be against you what can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall life or death? No. Angels? Principalities? No. Things present? Things to come? No. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The boot has been re- removed from your throat. You are free in Christ to serve him. Notice, final point. Job loved his children. He loved his kids. Now, this grips my heart because uh, Job's sons used to hold a feast and they had a rotation. So this is a picture of healthy family life. They had a rotation and they would invite their sisters to come 
and they would eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. So you see this father, he's still burdened for his kids. He's concerned about their spiritual well-being. And he would send and consecrate them. To consecrate them means to be set apart for God's purposes. And he would, he would rise early in the morning and he'd offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And he, he was thinking in his mind, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so I want, I want to intercede for them. I want to, I want to pray for them. And the scripture says this isn't something that Job did every once in a while. This Job did continually. Francis Anderson writes helpful commentary. We, we need not suppose that they spent all of their time partying and did not work. This, this is, there's no hint of drunkenness or license or laziness. Job expresses no anxiety on this score, although he is aware of the anger that they might slip into profanity. These delightful family gatherings are part of the atmosphere of well-being that begins the story. They are a mark of God's blessing, the finishing touch to this, to this happy scene is the godly parent making doubly sure that all is well. So when I think of fatherhood and I see Job's example here, Job is a protector. A father is a protector. He's alert to the spiritual situation of his home. He's a provider. He's providing spiritual leadership. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to preach on the 4th of July weekend, a message called The Family Altar. And I just want to kind of give a commercial in the middle of this message for it. I think of all the things we could talk about concerning national well-being, there is no replacement for each family in this body to have time where we gather as a family, read God's word, seek him in prayer, and worship the Lord in our homes. That's not happening. In fact, you talk about that on, uh, among Christians, that, that, that is not the norm, that is the minority, and that should not be. As if other things can replace that. Even, even our gatherings as a church, which should feed that and support that, there is no substitute for entering into God's presence as a family and fathers leading the way. He provided emotionally, physically, anyone would not provide for his own house, household, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.8, he's denied the faith and worth than an unbeliever and certainly want to be sensitive to those who can't work. But he's talking about laziness. He's not talking about a handicap. He's talking about laziness. A fa- what we see in Job here is a father who's a pastor to his family. So as I think of family life, men, the gospel will forever be the, fa- the power of God unto salvation. Nothing replaces the Bible. The local church is the place to be to show our loyalty to Christ. Prayer is the conduit for God's power and his grace is greater than any sin that may occur in family life. So this Father's Day, another opportunity for humility and worship, to be honest about our faults and mistakes and to begin again in God's grace. I pray that this morning has been a time of encouragement, men, and that even this day, things would be right in your family and in mine, uh, that we would be men of integrity and would remember the example that's set forth in the book of Job. Remember the law of the harvest. It's in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. May we, re- may we sow good seed. And may God be pleased um, to bring it to a fruitful harvest. Would you bow with me in prayer? I don't know, um, as always, don't know where this message met you this morning. If you're without Christ, we would point you to him. He is the one who takes the brokenness of our lives and conforms us into his image. He's the one who forgives our sins and makes us right with God and gives us the power to obey everything he's commanded in his word. If you have not surrendered to him, I point you in simple faith to call out to him right now. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He will come to you. He will save you. He will be with you. I would exhort the men in our church to embrace the challenges of of the word today, to be men of integrity, to be men who fear God, to be men who love their children, to be men who honor God to the end. Father, we pray in these closing moments that it would be a time of surrender, it would be a time of obedience, it would be a time of repentance, it would be a time of healing. As Lamar shared for, with us earlier about difficult relationships between father and son, that we would remember that we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. I pray, Lord, maybe you're working in the hearts of some. They need to make a call today, a visit today. They need to step towards painful issues in their life, that you would give what is needed, and that we as a church would support one another in this way. We, we pray in these closing moments that it would be a time of surrender and obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.